I must admit we were um, sitting in our staff meeting the other day and we always read the readings on Tuesday and we're saying, oh, who's preaching? <laughs> who's going to have to have a go at those readings? Because they're getting quite challenging uh, as we come towards the end of the year, the end of the church season and church year and coming up to the season of Advent. But I was in uh, town the other day, I don't get into town that often, but um, uh, I think it's always interesting when you haven't been in for a while, uh, both to see the new, but also quite sobering uh, to see still midst the, so much of the new city, the places where there's still, um, it doesn't feel like a lot's changed uh, since, and there's still the evidence of the quakes now 10, 11 years ago, and so there's still um, that telltale fencing off with the damaged buildings and uh, very much the weeds growing on the site. And uh, still, um, I know when I go around the cathedral, still you can find the occasional wild rabbit uh, in there around High Street making its home uh, in, in the ruined places. And it's like nature is, is sort of there. But some of it feels a bit stuck. And um, it's always quite sobering, I think, to still remember there's still... Um, a way to go and it's still only uh, 10 or 11 years ago and of course uh, for many of us and many of you those memories are still still strongly there. I was uh, thinking about my um, abiding memories of being in Jerusalem a few years ago now and um, I actually put a photo up, I think it's Hannah here, you can see um, just around where the temp what they call the Temple Mount is, uh, where there's now the big mosques, they've done quite a lot of excavating. And um, one of the sort of uh, things to get your head around is that a city is, of course, now built on layers. And they say Jerusalem of today is built on 12 layers of cities uh, going right back to the time of Jesus. And so they ex excavate down. And they've excavated right down around the Temple Mount and still found, come across these massive stones, which were actually the stones of the temple uh, that they've uncovered. And they're still in the same place where they fell at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And you can see they're massive. Um, most of them, they said, I've, I still think in feet sometimes, 37 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet thick. So what's that? Four metres, isn't it? Um, just extraordinary. Um, and they can identify which are the ones from Herod's temple because apparently they've got this particular beveled edge on them. So they can actually date them and say, well, these are the ones that actually go back uh, to that temple. And I think, um, think the next one, uh, I think I'm there in the green there. Um, you can sort of see we're standing by the big, all that's left now is the west, what they call the western wall, just um, just a tiny bit of the edge of the temple there. And then, as you can see, those huge um, stones next to us there. And then just on the next slide, um, when I was in um, Rome just a few years ago, I was able to see what's called the, the Triumphal Arch of Titus. And that's in, amidst all the Roman ruins in the Forum. And this arch is still there. And that was built in, in AD, uh, just after AD 70, to celebrate. Uh, it was the General Titus who'd won that great victory over Jerusalem. And after, um, as a general at the head of the army, he won that victory. He was actually made emperor uh, by popular acclaim. And I don't know if you can see up on the left there, you can actually see the menorah, the candlestick, 
from the temple. So that here they are with all the spoils, if you like, that they'd taken. They looted the temple and took everything that they saw of, of being of value. And on the right, you can see the trumpets, the, the shofar that were used to call the people to worship um, in amongst the standards of the Roman army. And you can imagine what that was, um, the grief of um, the people of Jerusalem at the time to see the, the Romans who they saw as pagans taking all their most holy and most special uh, things away to Rome. And that is actually what happened there in AD 70. So to come back to our gospel reading, we can picture um, Jesus and his disciples. It says Peter, Andrew, James and John. They're sitting over, and you can still sit there today on the Mount of Olives, looking over the valley into Jerusalem. And now when you look over, you see the golden top of the Dome of, of, the, um, dome of the Rock there and all those uh, mosques on the Temple Mount. Jews are not allowed uh, now to go on to the Temple Mount. Partly it's for their own safety in quite a conflicted city, but also because it's still considered holy, um, and the holy of holies, if you like. And so you can understand some of the tensions that there are there. But to go back to Jesus' time, there they were sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking over the valley at this wonderful new temple that was being built. And Herod, uh, who built this, had been building this temple and his descendants for about 40 or 50 years. So I won't mention cathedrals and how long they took to, they take to build. But you have this idea, and just as we know of, of other ones around the world, it takes years to build these most amazing places. And so here are the disciples looking on with awe. You know, they've come from Galilee. And here's this amazing building that they're looking um, on. It's not even quite finished yet. Uh, it was finished more in the, in the 40s and, and 50s. And it already had that reputation of being one of the most beautiful uh, buildings in the world, certainly the largest, most imposing uh, building for hundreds of miles around. And then Jesus says calmly, not one stone will be left here upon another. Everything will be thrown down. And the disciples are just gobsmacked. You know, they just cannot get their heads around it, as Jesus said to them. And indeed, we know that did happen. Uh, just 40 years later, in AD 70, there was the whole destruction of the temple. And, and of course, um, as we know, the disciples, as so often, they just cannot get this. And they're looking, looking down at this. It's, it's tough when things fall down, isn't it, Josie? <laughs> yeah, we all, we all have that. And they were in that sadness, too, of things falling. They just can't imagine. How could this be? Um, they just have no concept. And they still really, at the back of their minds, have this idea that Jesus is going to come out as this great king. Who's going to be the one who's going to get rid of the Romans? So they've still got these sort of rather glorified ideas in their head of what Jesus is going to do. And so they say to him, you know, well, well tell us, when's this going to be? You know, uh, what's, what's the sign? Give us the signal. Um, you know, uh, what's, what's the signal that all the action's going to begin? We want to be in on the action. But then Jesus goes down quite a different track. And he says to them, he speaks of a time and he says, um, he's no longer going to be there to lead his disciples. And rather, there are going to be false messiahs and prophets who will seek to lead them astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And I am he is just two little Greek words, ego, amy. I am. 
But for those with ears to hear, of course, that calls to mind God's name as revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. And so Jesus is saying, there are going to be people who come in my name and say, I am, um, in a blasphemous way. They're claiming to be God. Uh, they're claiming to be the Messiah. And they're going to exalt themselves, and they're going to give themselves divine status. And of course, we know that is what actually happened with the Roman emperors. Uh, they came to be seen after their death as divine. And indeed, people were called to give emperor worship to make sacrifices to the emperor. And that was one of the first challenges for the new Christians was, are we going to do that sort of token um, allegiance to the emperor? And no, because Jesus is Lord. And what they said at their baptism was three other words, Jesus is Lord. Um, and no other, as opposed to Caesar being Lord, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So that was going to be a real crunch point uh, for the new Christians. So Jesus warns them about this. And those reading Mark's gospel and hearing Mark's gospel, as they first would have heard, are warned that this is going to happen. Don't be surprised when this happens. Jesus, of course, in all this time, is trying to say to his disciples, my messiahship is going to look very different. And it's going to be a different way of showing what God is like. Um, I'm going to come a bit like uh, Moses and the Exodus. I'm going to be the one who rescues God's people out of slavery, but not of slavery to Egypt, not of slavery to Rome even, uh, but actually of that deeper slavery to sin and the things that hold us back in our lives. And so you can see Jesus' disciples sort of goggle-eyed um, as he talks about these things. And then Jesus' language gets more and more what we call apocalyptic imagery. He starts talking about wars and earthquakes and famines and cosmic turmoil. Uh, you know, things on a huge sort of universal plane are going to fall apart. And we know that Jesus was speaking, first of all, of the terrible upheaval that would come um, in the fall of Jerusalem just 40 years on and that destruction of the temple and indeed the destruction of the city. Legions of the Roman army, uh, led by the future Emperor Titus, put down what started off as a Jewish revolt. And that was only the first of two. Another 60 years later, 130 AD, the whole city of Jerusalem was razed to the ground by the Emperor Hadrian. So, um, you know, we know that these things happen from our history and um, that, in fact, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple, the most precious part of the Jewish faith, was destroyed. And so those events are the immediate focus of Jesus and what he's trying to prepare his disciples for. But we know, too, that generations of Christians since then, reading the uh, scriptures over hundreds of years, we've read such passages as these, and we wonder if Jesus was, is speaking to our time. And apparently at the millennium, I don't know whether you remember, or well, we do remember back to the second millennium, that year 2000, remember all that fuffle about what was going to happen to your computer and all that stuff and whether you're going to fly on a plane. Um, but we actually know from the year 1000 that people thought this was the time, that surely that all these things were going to happen and the end of the world would come, and yet they didn't. Um, and so all through history... 
time and time again, people have looked at the scriptures, and particularly when there's been cosmic events that have happened, when there have been wars, when there have been famines, when there have been pandemics and plagues, uh, when there have been things that happened in the world, people have asked, are these precursors to the second coming of Christ in glory? Jesus talked about the birth pangs, the labour pangs of the kingdom of God being birthed. Uh, we've just got a new baby in our family yesterday, so I was just looking at the photos and showing one or two of uh, little Zara, but also her mother, uh, just on that sort of, you know, those first photos taken, which actually probably um, after the birth, uh, uh, you're not looking your best. Um, and um, just, you know, being awareness of the pain that led to that wonderful joy. And, of course, we look too. We look at the wars, the earthquakes, the famines of our own time. And, of course, we add in the pandemic of our own time. And we wonder as well. And the challenge is how do we respond? As we approach this season of Advent, how do we read such difficult scriptures as these? And we recognise the language, the imagery, the symbols of apocalyptic writing, just as we saw too in the book of Daniel, which is another uh, part of the scriptures that we call apocalyptic writing, full of sometimes quite strange symbols and images to us. Is that uh, talk of Jesus bringing in the kingdom of God in a great coming in power and glory, is that just something that was a sort of a, a dream, a fantasy of the time that we have left behind us in this scientific day and age? Some would say so, and some would say actually our focus now needs to be looking for Jesus coming to us in many ways throughout our lives here on earth, in our daily lives, through the people we meet, as we meet together, and then as we go out into God's world. And two, at the hour of our death, when we meet Jesus and uh, he comes to take us home. Some would say those are the levels that we need to be thinking about Jesus coming to be part of our lives. And that it's actually mostly our job uh, as Jesus' people to be the ones we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are the ones who are called to be working to bring heaven on earth and to seek to make the world after the heart of God's values and priorities. Other, many other Christians will want to say, yet there will still be a time, and that's something we claim in faith, and we don't understand how it will happen, but one day Jesus will bring in the final kingdom of God when Jesus returns to this earth in power and glory and heaven and earth that seem so separated uh, in the divisions of our earth will be reunited. And then the labour will be over, and we will rejoice in that new creation and in the fullness of the kingdom of God, where God's peace and God's justice reign. And we long for that day, and we don't know all the answers, and we don't know all the time frames. In some ways, we feel a little bit like those disciples. We hear these words of Jesus, and we're just not, we, sometimes we can get a bit paralyzed and sort of think, well, what do we do with all this language? What do we do with all this imagery? I like to look at the verbs, because sometimes I think that can help us to get beyond that sort of powerless state. And some of the words Jesus uses, he says, be alert, be discerning, be wise like those stars, endure to the end, keep on keeping on, be faithful, live in hope. 
keep building and sustaining a community that can live with hope. And I think that's really important in these days that we're in with so much uncertainty and we can sort of feel that parts of our life are on pause. It's really hard to plan ahead, to keep turning to God who looks on us with love. And we can think, well, sometimes that just feels we've just got to be sort of doggedly patient with things as they are and that we're sort of on hold or we put our lives on pause. But I came across a phrase the other day that um, really drew my attention and it helped me, I think, to put a, put a new um, way of looking at it. And it was a challenge to us to live with revolutionary patience. And it's a funny combination of words. It sort of feels almost like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? How on earth do we live with revolutionary patience? It's actually um, was the name of a book written a little while ago by a German um, theologian, uh, Dorothy Serlaff. She's just recently died, actually, uh, but one of the great German uh, woman theologians of recent times. And this is, this is what she was talking about when she talked about revolutionary patience. She said, look at Jesus in Mark's gospel. He's an activist. He's a doer. Um, we always say in Mark's gospel that the, uh, Mark's favorite word is, and immediately Jesus did that. And immediately Jesus did the next thing. And immediately Jesus did the next. He sort of goes from one thing to the next. And yet, there's uh, patience, there's pauses where Jesus takes to pray and to discern the right moment to act. And so it's not just sort of a mindless um, going on and on, you know, or, or in a panic, just doing whatever we think we should do. It's actually l trying to live life immersed in God's timing and God's energy, to look to God for the energy to do the next right thing, to live life alert to the presence of God in every person and on every street and in every heart, looking for where Jesus is at work out there. And so it's a trustful way of living and watching and praying, um, attentive, alert, and awake. Uh, it's saying we trust God's timing in these things, and we also trust God's pace. And we talk about God's kairos time, the actual time when God moves. And so often it feels either slower or faster than we think it should be. Um, and sometimes it can perhaps feel inexorably slow. But God has God's time to move. And so revolutionary patience is not just being busy for the sake of it, but actually trying to have our actions rooted in prayer. And so it's not just, as we can so often feel, we're getting caught up in a treadmill, uh, but actually trying to live moments that are shot through with God's perspective on things. And I was talking to um, one of our clergy the other day who's been off on study leave, and part of his um, training he was doing was in spiritual direction and helping people, particularly young people. And he was talking about working um, with younger people who were at a stage where they were really wondering where their lives were going and it was really hard to make decisions and really hard to sort of plan. And, but, and so they were sort of constantly, um, I think it was, was it last year's favourite word in the Oxford Dictionary, doom scrolling. You know how easy it is to doom scroll and we sort of, you know, we're sort of checking the news or checking the one o'clock numbers or whatever. And he said, the danger is we just sort of get hooked into this 
fairly mindless sort of doom scrolling and says rather than actually saying, and he was trying to help these young people to press pause, to actually be brave enough to stop. And for some of us, maybe that's right for us too. And to press pause at the end of the day and stop and reflect. And he'd been teaching these um, young people how to do the examen, uh, which is a very old, you know, it comes from Ignatius right back what, um, in the 1500s. But just pressing pause at the end of the day, looking back over the day and saying, where did I see God at work? And just quite simple questions, really. Where did I feel close to God? And where did I feel not close to God or far away from God? And that, that, that's it, just those simple questions, but allowing us to stop the sort of whirring, busy brain and just reflect and find perspective and to reflect before we take the next action. And he said that was really helping some young people he found to get off that treadmill of sort of thinking, I don't know what I'm doing next year, I don't know, you know how study's going to look, I don't know if it'll all be online, I don't know what the job market's going to look like. And if that's, maybe that's helpful to you as well. Because I think sometimes um, I like the way saying revolutionary patience is not just being passive. Um, so often we can think of patience as being, well, I've just got to sort of grin and bear it or endure um, and, or just sort of stoically accept what's happening. And it's actually saying no. It's when we pause that we're actually refueled for the next action. Uh, so that we don't run out of steam, if you like. It's actually deliberately, uh, and I sometimes find as we get to the end of the year and things get busier and busier, I sometimes purposefully make myself sit on the floor. And I think it's sort of that grounding, you know, to saying I'm actually going to stop and not just, you know, rush from one thing to the next. And I'm listening to myself saying this <laughs> and saying, do it, practice what you preach. Um, we need to be refueled in those pauses so that our action, when it comes, is actually rooted in God and that we can see where God's at work, even in the tough places, uh, even in the things where we're not quite sure uh, how it's all going to pan out. Um, and as we listen to people and try and not escalate the stress at this time of year, but to help each other just to be revolutionary patient. So if that's a phrase that's helpful for you to take away, may we be people of revolutionary patience, um, that actually in that revolution that we turn around again to face Christ, to ask Jesus to help us to turn back to God, to just stop, reflect, pause, and then take the action that God asks of us. Watch and pray and then be ready to take action. So it's not just sort of thoughtless, um, I should be doing something or I need just to do something. But actually, um, as we remember and as we'll remember in a few, a, a few short weeks coming up, God came into the world as a vulnerable, helpless child that was dependent, that couldn't do great things, uh, but that wasn't, was just there among us. And partly, too, I think that revolutionary patience is helping us to rely on each other. Patience also has that root in it of, of suffering together. And so we have that sense that we also rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I think that's part of our uh, living and enduring together.
I came across a quote. Uh, it's always interesting when you come across these things which are centuries old but seem to speak to today. It's from um, Augustine of Hippo. And he said in the fourth century, and he was facing really tough persecution as a Christian in North Africa. And he said, bad times, hard times, that is what people keep saying we are living in, the worst of times. But let us live well, and then times shall be good. We are the times, and so such as we are, such are the times. Let us live well, and then times shall be good. As we read our scripture readings the other day at staff meeting, we then followed, we were doing morning prayer together with um, a lovely passage of scripture, and we've decided to put it in. So um, it's on the next slide there, Hannon, I think. There it is. It's a lovely little passage from 1 Peter, and it talks about a living hope. And I think, again, it reminded us, as we said that, how important it is to just earth ourselves in Scripture when times are hard, whether it's the daily readings or whatever it is, just something, whether it's a praise you go on your phone or an app, something that just helps us to earth. Um, sometimes uh, if I've, you know, if it's been a, a day where I haven't managed anything else, I just try and read one psalm to end the day, one psalm. And so often that just brings me back uh, earthed in God. So let's say together this beautiful passage, A Living Hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose great mercy we have been born anew, born to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, born to an inheritance which will never perish or wither away, one that is kept in heaven for us. By God's power we are guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the end of time. We rejoice in this, though now we suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that is tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and shall be forever. Amen. So let us turn now to prayer. Thank you, Nigel. Let us pray. Holy God, before we call, you answer. And before we speak, you know our needs. Hear the prayers we bring for your people and your world. The bidding is, Holy God, you can make all things new in your mercy. And the response is, hear our prayer. God of nations, we pray for the peoples of the earth, for a world where the hungry are fed and the homeless housed the oppressed set free, and the dispossessed returned to their land, where children can grow up in safety and all your people live in security and peace. Holy God, you can make all things new. In your mercy, 
Hear our prayer. Lord of the church, we pray for a servant church where power and privilege hold no sway, where none is excluded from your table and division is replaced by unity, where hearts are set on fire with your love and your gospel is proclaimed through word, sacrament and deed. Holy God, you can make all things new. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of community, we pray for those with whom we share our lives. For a society where the young are nurtured and the elderly honoured. Where newcomers are welcomed and diversity embraced. Where wealth is shared and all people receive just reward for their labours. Strengthen our young people as they sit exams and their families and teachers supporting them. Holy God, you can make all things new. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of compassion, we pray for all who are in trouble or need. For a new earth where sorrow gives way to delight and mourning to joy where fears are allayed and pain eased, where the suffering are comforted and those who are dying live in dignity and peace. We pray especially for Alison, Beatrice, Don, Helen, Ian, Owen, Kathleen and Terence, Malcolm and Elizabeth and all those supporting them, and for all affected by COVID in our community and country at this time. Holy God, you can make all things new. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, we give thanks for all who have died in the faith of Christ for the whole company of the saints in heaven, for those who have died recently, remembering Graham Whitmore, Simon McMillan, Connor Whitehead, and Jim Aitchison. Surround their family and friends with your love and comfort. Work your new creation in us, that we too may be made anew in your likeness, and bring us with all your saints to share with you in your glory. Holy God, you can make all things new. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or conceive, by the power which is at work among us, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages. Amen.